Yeah, you're the Sully Dog here, and we're going to kick off this interview with Renee Geyer because uh, we've got about 60 minutes of uh, Renee uh, talking about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to cut it in with a whole uh, bunch of great uh, tracks from her, and so stand by and have a listen to some uh, great Australian music, uh, world music, soul music. Let's kick off here. This track, I'm Evil Tonight, from the album Tonight, Renee Gaya. I'm evil tonight, mean as I can be, cause the man I love got away from me. Today we've got uh, one of Australia's uh, most renowned and uh, certainly one of the world's uh, best blues singers. So uh, the Sully Dog's a little bit in awe, but I'm trying to hide it. Uh, that's great. So welcome uh, to the show, Renee Geyer. Thank you for inviting me to my first uh, podcast interview. That's great. Well, thanks for coming along. Look, I'm not sure where we start. There's a lot of material on your background. I think it's about a 30-year-plus history in the Australian and, uh, Thank you and for inter- me. Inter- international uh, <laughs> uh, blues uh, scene and also soul, obviously a big fan of soul. Uh, and there's lots of stories about um, where you started uh, singing as a young girl. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'd like to ask just firstly, um, what sort of music first uh, got under your skin? Well, actually... In the very beginning, when I was a very young girl, like a 
lot of my friends at the time, there were shows. I, I, I was raised, born in Melbourne, but raised in Sydney. And at that time, there were things like Commotion and a show called It's All Happening that Billy Thorpe hosted. And, um, and I remember this was in the days when people fans girl fans would make things called gonks which are like pillows with arms and legs and oh, you yes, draw yes. a face on them and you throw them at your favorite artists and if they catch it and take it home you 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 just feel like whoa there you go you know and you you might have a little message written in inside for what are them. these things called a gonk gonk g o n k gonk a gonk, a gonk. <laughs> um you know nice and soft so you're not actually knocking someone out when you're throwing it at them but um that's my my earliest um, fan. I was a fan of people more so because they were handsome and music hadn't quite – music was important, but it hadn't hit me at the age of sort of eight and nine yet. I was just listening to what was on the radio and watching these shows. And, and so the first record my mum bought me was Normie Row A Go-Go. Yeah. Which um, – it, it, I read an article that when Normie Rowe had gotten into trouble with the police because he was with a, a minor, he was with a girl that was underage, and I thought, it could have been me. <laughs> so I, I got records in the early days for the, all the wrong reasons, but the right reasons at the time. Um, then through the radio, I used to have a little transistor radio that I'd keep under my pillow at home because my dad was a classical music nut, so any any rock and roll in the house was sort of banned. Yeah. So I'd have this little transistor, and the minute I heard, I think it was either Aretha or Sam and Dave, Hold On, I'm Coming, or one of those things, um, it touched a nerve immediately. That's a good noise, isn't it? It's, yeah, that's the great. That's, that's the real... Uh, We're in Elwood. And, in Elwood podcast interview. Yeah. That's right. Um, anyway, so I, I, I think the minute I first heard rhythm and blues or soul music on the radio, and that in itself is already, you know, rare, it, it even still is nowadays. I can imagine back then it was kind of, you know, to hear Sam and Dave or oh, I think there was um, even Tony Joe White, you know, um, early, early Tony Joe White, on the radio I just something triggered in me and from then on um, I I never thought I would actually become a singer because I grew up in a Jewish family and and the typical thing for a Jewish girl was that you, they'd send you off to university in the hopes that you'd meet your future husband there yeah it was all sort of like kind of a token you pick a subject and you're smart enough to get into uni but let's face it you're there till you find the husband of your man of your dreams and uh i think the drill is fantastic by the way it's great isn't it i'm just uh, wondering the um it's my dentist who i'm going to next (laughs) after this that's great anyway um so uh black black music when it hit me it hit me big and and it it just knocked me over and that that was i knew that was what i would would love from then on but i never thought i'd actually be in the music biz and that just happened through friends of mine that had a school band yeah rich guys that had lots of equipment but didn't actually know how to play but i got up and sang um actually a bg song you don't know what it's like to love somebody yeah yeah, yeah. and got the job and from that band 
and from their reaction to my voice, I just thought, oh, I must. I, I knew I was good in my lounge room singing into the hairbrush. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know how it would come across to others, and that was it. From then on, uh, it, everything took a turn for the nurse, and um, I had to leave home and left school and joined a band. And for a Jewish girl at the age of seventeen to leave home and join a rock and roll band was. Yeah. Not, not really a normal thing to do. So, uh, so what was it about uh, black music that got under your skin? I have no idea, and that's a question that, um, as you know, I've been posing that question to a few people with with a radio show of my, of my own called "What Is Soul," and that question is kind of unanswerable because yeah. it's different things to different people. It's 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 a feeling, and it's um. A great black singer, um, and I always prided myself that I knew if someone was white or black, and I I knew because I loved Dusty Springfield, but knew she was white, and I loved Lulu, yeah, who had a soulful voice. It's something about the way they sing, and the feeling, and the rhythm, and the way the two blend together. Sure. Now you were in the uh, the Australian Recording Industry Association, that's ARIA Awards Hall of Fame, I think, with Normie Rowe too. It's funny, I know, <laughs> and I told that story uh, to him that night. I, I, the only thing, the reaction was, I don't think he was thrilled to know that I was like, you know, about eight at the time, but right. he would have only been a teenager yeah. anyway, but uh, yeah. But th- that's awarded because of uh, obviously a, a long, a 20 year plus history of uh, contribution to the music and the and a whole range of other things. But if I look at your albums, Renee, going back to uh, early days in the 70s, uh, where you had a number of hits when you were in early 20s. I never got an aria. Uh, never, no, no aria, no, that's right. Never got an aria, yeah. but, you know, in the Hall of Fame, so. But they started about 80s. When did they start? 87? I, I think so, but before then, it was King and Queen of Pop. That's right. And I have a theory that, because I was kind of a more, um, I wasn't a, a mass appeal type girl. Um, uh, you know, they used to call me the Aussie's leather lunged belter. <laughs> um, I think, I think you know that the winners of King and Queen of Pop used to be on that following Mondays in the middle section, big portrait with their crowns on their heads. Yes, and I just don't think any of those people could see a tiara on my head. So it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I never got any of those, um, but I got into the Hall of Fame. But, you know, there you go. So if, if I look at that that uh, that history from, I think you did uh, first hit with James Brown, It's a Man's Man's That's World, right. which will uh, try and fit into the show somewhere, just to re- recollect for people. Uh, that was one of your first big hits. But your recording career has taken a different number of changes over the years. I mean, you, you've gone from sort of pop to soul, a bit sort of. bluesy at, at times. It's always really been based on R and B. It's R and B always, uh, because it's just the way I'm built, and it's the way things end up coming out. I mean, if Paul Kelly writes a song for me, it'll when he his rendition will be country sort yeah. of style, and then in my hands it turns into an R and B thing. So it's just inbuilt. There were times in the eighties, which was a pretty horrible decade musically in Australia. Was mm. that um, you know, the new romantic and the punk sort of era, which which I now look back and and respect for what it was now. But in those days, there was you know the closest thing to black music was um, 
was Lionel Richie's Dancing on the yeah. Ceiling or Thriller. Mm. Australia's never really had um, and still doesn't really have uh, much rhythm and blues yeah, that's on right. a mass level. Yeah, yeah, it's always a, a niche market almost. Yeah. Which the Blues and Roots show we do here, obviously, a lot of great Australian talent. Yeah. Like, uh, including Thank yourself, God obviously. For you. yeah. um, but it's, it's sort of a global market. Uh, Australia's a small place. But you, on those albums and that sort of uh, the material you select, I mean, I'm very interested to know you select a lot of great songs for your material, for your albums. And how do you go about that? Well, you know, I'm coming up to doing my 22nd album this year. So. Um, throughout the years some of the albums have been not very good uh, and those are the albums let's leave that there for a moment we're listening to Renee Gay uh, interview uh, recorded in January 2007 let's hear a track from Renee
you're signed up and you have to deliver an album by a certain date. So you scramble and, and, and I learned really quick that if you scramble and people used to say, you're, you're this great singer, you could sing the phone book. And I, in fact, did on some of those records. Because right. some of the songs were just picked randomly and quickly and not much thought put in. And I learned my lesson from that. I, um, it's only really been in the last 15 years that I... I mean, I've never been made to sing something I don't want to sing, but I was a lot less discerning than I am now because it just makes sense that if you do the best that you can do, you've got a better fighting chance than if you don't. Mm. Um, and I, I teach a few young singers at the moment and and that's my thing to them is that, you know, you've got a much better chance of doing anything and lasting longer if you do what it is you do truly in your heart because to to do something that's not natural for you and then to have to go and promote it and heaven forbid that something like Say I Love You for me, which I think is a great little record on the radio, mm, mm. but live it's it's really a bore to play because it's only just one chord. It just goes all the way through. and yeah. And so heaven forbid that you do something that's sort of that you think is okay and it becomes a hit you're stuck and have to do it and you keep doing for the rest it. Yeah. of your life you know so i just think there is no um i look i i did a show last week uh for australia day and guy sebastian was on the bill who i think has got you know it's the one thing australian idol got right mm. this guy is an amazing singer and his natural instinct is rhythm and blues right but he's been i spoke to him because he played some rock pop song as well as a ballad but i said why are you you know he saw the record company says there's just no market for the r&b thing so they've they're urging me to pop it up right and what a crying shame because and i i said to him look i'm living proof that if you stick to your guns you can still be around 35 years later but your thing is your incredible voice and the soulfulness of your voice. So if you are doing pop ditties and heaven forbid and be great, but if that becomes what you're known for, you're not doing yourself a favour. Yeah, you know? There tends to be a lot of overproduction too, isn't there? Absolutely. And I, I think when you're signed to a major corporate label, um, where they throw hundreds and thousands thousands of dollars behind your album, which I know for a fact you don't need, because if you've got great musicians, a great engineer, you can do a great album for $50,000. Mm. I mean, and that mainly is the studio cost. Right. Um, so all these re people that get these huge deals and they're hundreds of thousands of dollars to make their records, it's just not necessary. But it looks good on paper to them for some reason. But all that happens is the artist ends up being in debt. Right. And um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, to answer your question, like really in, in a nutshell, talent, of course, is the main thing, but it ends up being the tiniest part of what it is that it takes for you to become a stayer. Mm. The yeah, are you controlling your own production now? Of course. And um, I always had the opportunity to do that, but I left it to others who I thought would know 
what to do. And most of the times I got it right. The records I did in America with Stairs and Whispers and all those things were great records. And Frank Wilson, who was a major producer for Motown, produced that record. So, And all of Stevie Wonder's band played on that. So yeah. those things were great. But I do control... Um, like I, the biggest record I've had in recent times was my biggest selling record ever, which was Tenderland yes, in 2003. Yes. I produced that myself. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was the case. And this next one I'm going to produce myself. I just think if you've got the great musicians and a great engineer, it kind of produces itself. And then when mixing time comes, you can sort of go, well, the bass needs to be a bit louder or yeah. want a different sound on that drum hi-hat or whatever. But that's really the only time where um and now we have the the benefit of pro tools which in the right hands can yes. be fantastic because you're still playing with your whole band but you can edit and do all sorts of things with pro tools whereas before there was all tape cutting and yes it, it used to be a nightmare to be able to cut something and edit things yes now look tenderland's fantastic album um in fact, in preparation for this interview, I was listening to it again last night. The what what strikes me very very um, how would I describe it? Very sophisticated production values in in, in that it's it's really good um, R and B blues soul whatever you want to put it. But it, it's extremely well done. Um, Thank you. As in you could you, you you as a listener you can't fault the sort of production on that. Now, what do you put that down to? Is that is that the way? Um, you select the material, the way you sing, the way the um, musicians play, is it everything together or, or is it a particular sound you're after? It, 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 as I said, if you've got the right musicians and in your head all those arrangements were my arrangements and if anything, it, it was because it was a kind of covers album yes. in, so in, in as much as it was the songs that inspired me growing up. Now, you're treading on very, very deadly territory when you take a classic like um song for you the leon russell song yes. or um midnight train to georgia um which is already a classic the only way you can justify it is if you which is what i did pay homage to the writer of the song and if a writer writes a song that's a classic it can be done many different ways because mm. it's such a great song but what I decided to do, um, which is kind of the opposite of what, let's say, Human Nature have done now, where they've done this Motown selection, but they've kind of pretty much copied the tracks arrangement-wise, note for note. Um, not a lot of imagination put in there. And I, I, I say that, I, I'm, I respect them as singers because they're a wonderful singing group, but... Um, the the record's gone, you know, trillion, trillion times platinum, which proves that there is a market out there for that sort of music. But what are the odds when you've got Motown hits that were huge back then that, of course, people are going to love them now? If they've never heard them before, they're going to love them. So when you say, what were you going for? Uh, I just wanted it to to be as as real as possible as when we perform. And so if it sounded really sophisticated and slick, I put that down to the musicians being really great and we, we sort of knew what we were doing. We performed, we cut everything live and I always do a vocal with the band. Yeah, It's called a guide vocal, 
but most of the time it ends up being the vocal because it it sort has of governs a passion in how it, the band yeah, plays. Yeah, yeah. And usually we end up keeping, I always have the, the microphone that's going to be the one that we use for the guide vocal because what ends up happening is I usually keep the main part of the of that guide vocal and then add and fix things. Well, yeah, I noticed that the, the recording has a lot of passion in it and I think that's probably yeah. why it sold so well. All we wanted yeah. was a snapshot of what we do to sound as real as what it is when you do it live as possible and and with the benefit of, of really good engineer and, and sounds, that's all it is. And if it sounds sophisticated, that's a big, big compliment because all we did was, and what, what I was aiming for was to capture what it is we do when we play it live and to strip back the arrangements of the songs as opposed to copy yeah. them or add, add to, them. to them. Yeah. So Midnight Train to Georgia, we don't have the pips so yeah. there was no woo woo so it was I had some girls doing some backgrounds and we changed them a little bit and it basically starts off acoustically and so it's a very different arrangement yeah but no, it's really good people seem to like it with 10,000 people watching now we're alone yeah we're listening to Renee Gayer uh, talking about uh, her album Tenderland at this point the song, uh, the Leon Russell song, Song for You. Your image of me is what I hope to be. I treated you uncannily many times. But baby, can't you see?
singing my song for nobody but you. Gone Bananas Tropical Restaurant has long been a favorite haunt of locals and tourists alike. With its exotic garden setting and unique menu, Gone Bananas offers Australian gourmet cuisine with Mediterranean flavors. Enjoy super cocktails and drinks at the bar, then dine at your leisure to the cool sounds of jazz featuring live piano with Charlie Broadbent on weekend nights from 7 p.m. Gone Bananas is open Monday to Saturday from 6 p.m. till late. Call 4099-5400 now for your tropical garden table. And remember, Gone Bananas is the alternative to town. For over 10 years you have trusted Lots of Printing with your printing and now you can get quick and easy websites. Lots of makes it so easy that you can even change your own data live to your web page. No more crazy fees and hocus pocus. Crikey, they even have simple straightforward packages available to look after your domain names and emails. Lots of make it professional, functional and hassle free. Give the Lots of Team a ring on 4099 3366 or pop into Teamsters Close, Port Douglas. The Salsa Bar and Grill is the ultimate in casually elegant dining. Situated in Wharf Street in an open-sided Queenslander, Salsa's Courtyard offers tropical ambience with stunning views across the park to the Coral Sea. Presenting an outstanding selection of daily specials, Salsa's culinary reputation is world famous, having played host to a variety of international celebrities over the past 10 years. Salsa Bar and Grill is open seven days for lunch and dinner, and reservations are essential. Phone 4099-4922 to book this award-winning restaurant. Fiorelli's Restaurant and Bar on the Boardwalk at the Marina Mirage is a great place to dine overlooking the marina. Fiorelli's is the perfect place for breakfast and their Eggs Benedict and Bloody Marys are world-renowned. For lunch or dinner, indulge in fresh seafood and Australian cuisine with icy cold drinks and fruit cocktails or simply stop for a coffee and a chat. Fiorelli's Restaurant and Bar, open every day. Call 4099-5201. Hey Renee, your new album, you I think you're in the studio at the moment, or you're planning to be in the studio yep. to release, is it going to release it or record it in March in going 2007? Record, recording in March um, for hopeful release around August with uh, EMI this time. Right. So I'm very lucky to get another chance. Great. And can you tell us something about what you're planning with this new album? Well, as with all, all, all the last, you know, half dozen albums, um, what what I... The way I do it is I start gathering material. I put them on a on a CD, and I travel in the car with them. The minute I start skipping yeah, over, the silly dog here. We're listening to Renee yeah. Gaya talking about making her new album. This record is going to be a kind of a mixture of what Tenderland was, but also some original music that is of that sort of you know late sixties, early seventies soul. Right. So and that's no mean feat because to be able to write new songs that come up to that level is uh is a hard thing. But I've already got two incredible ones from Paul Kelly. Great. Um some New Zealand Maori uh writers have written me a couple of tunes which are 
incredible. One is a real Al Greeny thing. So I'm, what I do is I, I end up with draft after draft after draft until right when the record's about to start, I have usually a list of about 15 tunes. And if I'm not skipping over any of them, they're the ones that I end up going into the studio and cutting. And then we end up, and I'm still always looking right up until mixing because some things pop. You might get something right in the last minute, which we do in the last minute. Um, what happens is 11's been my lucky number. So the last few records, I've had 11 tracks on, on okay, the record. Yeah. And it just seems to be just enough, not too much, not too little. So we cut about 14 or 15 and then pick the best 11 or 12 of those. Right. And when, when should we expect to see that, that album out on the shelves? Hopefully hopefully August. Um, they were originally going to aim for Mother's Day and that's not going to be possible if we're starting in March. So apparently it takes a really long time to do the cover art and all of that stuff has to be, you know, for them sure. to actually make the record. So we reckon about August. And that'll be worldwide release? Uh well, Australia and New Zealand for the for, for the, the moment, and we'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Now, on on another tack, you do a lot of still do a lot of um, uh, stage performing work all the time. And um, and is there a good reason for that? They invite me. They invite you, and and you, and you love that sort of work. Well, it's what I do. For, yeah. For a living, and um, uh, when you're invited to to be on, like at the moment, it's January going into February, and this is sort of winery season so That's there's right. a lot of um day on the greens and big day outs and all that sort of thing so when you're asked invited to do something and it's and it's a nice fee on top of it all it's pretty hard to say no um i think i i get very tired of the traveling that part of it i can take or leave but the minute the band starts up and I'm on stage, I get a charge out of that. And when that stops, that's when I'll stop doing live shows or cut back, you know. But at the moment, I'm working more than I've probably ever worked because I still love it. So Sure. And you thinking of doing any tours? I mean, like uh, you used to do in the past? I think when the album comes out, there will be a tour to promote the album for sure, um, oh. as we do with every album. But other than that... The year is dotted with, you know, different things. Like there's, the, uh, I do a lot of corporate work as well, you know, corporate right. uh, functions that, that ask for my services. So there's lots of bits and pieces that I do all through the year that, you know, we don't go looking, but the my agent gets them in and asks me, if, you know, uh, if we're feeling good and the boys are available, then we're on. In terms of those sort of live um, uh, live performances, what's, what's some of the, the ones that you consider some of your best, the ones that are most memorable for you? Well, you know, we there's so many different ways to do it. A lot of people do sort of ever since the MTV started that um, acoustic, the acoustic oh, sessions yes, yeah. or whatever they call that. Um, there's a lot of um, smaller rooms where it works for me just to have piano and guitar. But I prefer the whole band, which is a four-piece band, because it just it means that you you have an hour and a half of different colours. You can only do so much with just a couple of instruments and yourself, because yeah. most of my shows feature the musicians within the songs that we do, but not to the point where it's boring. I don't don't like 
long solos just for the sake of long solos but but we do the odd song where I feature the band and just you, you can just do so much more when you have a whole when you've got the bass and the drums as well and my music is rhythm based so yeah. when we do acoustic it's for me not as much fun as when I have the whole band Right. But we do both. Now, in terms of the bands you work with, you work with some great Australian musicians. I'm um, Mark Punch, um, Paul Kelly. Ross Hannaford. Ross Hannaford, uh, a whole range of others. You did an album with Paul Kelly called Difficult Woman, which has sort he of become that, yeah. part of the Australian vernacular now. <laughs> it's um, that's, that's my nickname, and I, w- I wear it as a badge of honour. And I've got to ask, how did that nickname come about? Well, he wrote the song. That's he right. He wrote the song, and um, he tells the story that, uh, and I, I, I think he's correct. Um, he, I think what happened was early in our friendship. Um, he, he, I think I found out he wrote a song for Kate Sobrano, which she never ended up recording. So I, I grabbed it, which was called "Cake and the Candle," right, uh, on an album called "Sweet Life," which he co-produced with Joe Camilleri in nineteen ninety eight. And so I I just sort of confronted him and said, well, how about writing me a song? You know, and Paul tells it as like when you get this from Renee, it's not so much a question as a command. <laughs> he loves to say that. And if that gets people happy, then fine. Um, so he apparently went away and, and wrote this song with me in mind and called me up and said, I've got this great song for you. And I said, oh, I'll sing a bit over the phone. He said, no, 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 let me come over and sing it for you. I said, oh, give me a little bit over the phone. What's it called? And um, he said, Difficult Woman. And then, he, and then he said, that was the longest 20 seconds of my life. Yeah. Pause, you know. Um, and I, which was true. And I, I went, oh, um, how about you come over and play it for me? <laughs> and so he did. And, of course, the song is a beautiful song. It, it, it is not what one would think a song called Difficult Woman would be. It's, 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 a, it's about a complicated person. And most women who are in charge of what they do and are opinionated and, I mean, you never hear this, you never hear a guy being called Difficult Man. You no. never hear Difficult Woman. And um, I think Paul's got a really great male and feminine side when he writes songs. He, he, he can write from a woman's perspective through a man's eyes. Um, and I think he hit the nail on the head with that as, as to it can be a lonely life. But when you do find your soulmate, that's somebody very special that can understand that you are the way you are. And it's more about being... A bit more complicated and deep than just being difficult. So it's not about. She doesn't know how to trust herself. So it's hard to trust at all. Yeah, we're listening to Renee Gayer here on Salty FM. Uh, or Douglas FM, salty.com.au. You we did with Raining A Gaya. Here's a track, a difficult woman. A difficult woman sways between shame and pride. 
that we bear us women who are self you know independent and uh, stick to our guns in terms of what we want to do that's all that's all that it took to be given that sort of nickname that's great it's just sticking to one's guns which if I was on the wrong track I don't think I'd still be here 36 years later sure it's only because I have stuck to my guns and if that's called difficult then and I don't know a great woman out there that's not difficult. So uh, most. No, I don't men think I've met any that uh, aren't difficult either. But uh, you're probably right. Uh, and you interviewed Paul Kelly for your ABC yeah. Australia um, series of interviews with Bonnie Ray, Tex Perkins, and uh, James Rain, which we'll put a link to on the on yeah. the site with this interview, so people can have a look at it's that. On the ABC uh, and yeah. with ABC Australia. So uh, those of you listening to this might like to listen to uh, Renee talking with Paul Kelly. www.abc.net.au, and you just put in. Renee Gay, The Soul of the Matter, in the search engine. And, and up it be. comes. Great. So we'll do that. Now, on, on another tact, um, it's all like a question you should ask at the start, but I want to ask it now. Um, if you Was a singer like an inevitable destiny for you? If you weren't a singer, what would have you been? Well, like I said, I, I, I was pretty good at school 
and managed to fluff my way through exams so without too much study. Um, I was right in the last year of school when I just decided to leave and join a band. I probably would have... I was good at languages, so right. I probably would have ended up being an English... Going going for being an English or language teacher. English teacher and stuff Something. like that. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Interesting, but sort of... Uh, I mean, I, you talk to some people, they say, oh, from the age of 10 I was going to be a musician or something. This, you could sing and then all of a sudden it, it took, took over your life. Yeah, I just, knew, I just knew I was good at singing, but I never in a million years, coming from the family that I came from, quite a religious Jewish family, there's no way I would have thought that I would somehow meet people and become a musician. It Did you have happened. to work hard at it, Renee, or was it just something that happened, you could do it? It just happened. And as I said, the first band that I joined, from from their excitement of how I sounded, I just had a feeling that this is, I was good at it. And so I just kind of, kind of very ruthlessly would be in one band, would grab the best player from that band and go to the next best band mm-hmm. and moved sort of up the ladder of band, Bandsville. Yeah. Um, when I sort of outgrew the band that I was in, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, you spent uh, about 10 years in the US. Uh, nearly 11, yeah. Nearly 11. and A couple in New York and and eight years in uh, LA. And you recorded uh, albums over there? I, I didn't actually... I, I recorded Difficult Woman with Paul over there, but I actually didn't do my own stuff. I became um, a really busy session singer... But not typical session singer. I used to get asked to do things like I sang with Buddy Guy uh, on Buddy Guy's record with Bonnie Raitt. Right. Because I knew the producer, John Porter. Um, through producers knowing of what I could do, they knew that they could hire me and with me they would get a whole choir because I can do all the different parts. Right. And they, they could... A, a it, it was done very quickly and they could save a lot of money and and also I could deliver um, <clears throat> I told a story to somebody I think on on TV show uh, where my cousin came to visit me in America and she I, I that was around the time I was I think I was asked to do something on one of Neil Diamond's records and David Foster was the producer right. They wanted a wail, like a an R&B moaning, like a black man from down south wail yeah. at the yeah. end of one of Neil's songs and they got me in to do it. And so <clears throat> I told my cousin, come with me and I'll show you what I actually do for a living because I can't <laughs> explain it to you. Yeah. And there's no lyric sheet. Um, they tell me the bit that they're talking about and off I go, you know, doing just R&B wails and answers to to what um, Neil Diamond was singing and do it usually in one take. Then they go, oh, let's do another one and keep that one, do another one for another type and then, then yeah. maybe another one. Yeah, yeah. And I do the big wail and all that stuff and answer Neil Diamond's vocals and, and then take the headphones off, put them down and go, is that all right? Yep sign the piece of paper and out I go and my cousin was in shock she said 
that's that's what you do i said that's what i do and that's why i can't explain to you what i do <laughs> but um every now and then i got a really great thing to do like when i did sing not only with bonnie on buddy guys feels like rain album i did a, and that was the one where uh paul rogers was his guest on right. that record um i ended up doing the backgrounds on all all of buddy's tracks and so when he did the tonight show with jay leno he asked if i would put the girls together for to do the backgrounds live yeah so i got these two black girls and there was me and these two black girls and we did the backgrounds on the tv show um those things were the great little bits and pieces that i used to do in america that that kind of um in retrospect i learned so much and i also got a publishing deal with emi publishing um, because the head of EMI Publishing in California was a fan of my records and right. knew that on every record there was always a couple of original things. She said, you're potentially a really great writer. We'd like to sign you up as a writer. And then they used to put me with other EMI writers and they have a little studio so you'd record your demos. Yeah. So I learned a lot about the recording process and you know it was such a great learning curve by being a writer for emi i mean i don't think you know i mean i, I had things like remember the turtles movies those um the, yeah, ninja, turtles? the ninja turtles yeah I, I got a song on one of those movies <laughs> and um there was a kathleen turner was in a movie called warshawski where she was a private investigator i had a song on there that i co-wrote with james rain and yeah so you know i'll i'll get a Swedish girl group has covered one of my songs or, you know, it, the great thing about this industry is if you do write songs and you do a lot of recordings, yeah, they're there forever. That's People right. People can come across them whenever and might want to use them for something at some point in your life. So they're kind of a little investment. That you, That's right. Something for the future. Yeah. You got a nasty stream. Yeah. Twelve miles away. Yeah, you're the silly dog here. We're on uh, Port FM 107.1, far north Queensland, or right across the web on www.sully.com.au. It's my pleasure this time round on the Urban Soul Show to be bringing you an interview with Renee Gayer in depth with a whole bunch of great music. This one, you got a nasty streak. You got a high. I believe your veins are solid ice. Drop me in the ocean for the sharks. Take my body for a dive. You got a nasty street. Oh, yes, you do. And you got a high. 
to tell me twice You took me to the mountain for the birds Take my soul to the sky Best live gigs in town, the Iron Bar Restaurant presents live music Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights. Don't forget the famous Cane Toad races at 7.30pm every night and the Idol Karaoke Competition on Sunday night with Jim Beam and Quicksilver. The Iron Bar Restaurant is open every day serving lunch and dinner with an authentic Aussie flavour. Sheridan's at Marina Mirage stock skateboards, DC shoes and clothing from the US. They also have skimboards, snorkel and dive gear at affordable prices and a variety of luggage from Caribbean, Australia. Sheridan's are the exclusive outlet for riders' Brazilian sandals designed for the tropics, guaranteed not to take your hair off. Hey, so come and see us and our friendly staff for awesome styles at the best prices. Sheridan's at Marina Mirage. We all know that fresh is best, but for the crew at Blood Orange, it's their mantra. Blood Orange offers a premium selection of tropical fruit and vegetables, gourmet meats, organic cheeses, Asian groceries, and much more. Their in-house chef is sure to find something to wow your crowd, from their exclusive range of homemade sauces, jams, dips, and pestos. And yes, they even sell bread and milk. Blood Orange is the most vibrant and inspiring shop on Warner Street, and they're open seven days. 
The Central Hotel in downtown Port Douglas offers traditional Queensland pub service and icy cold beer. Hang out with the locals and enjoy live music and great pub food. Air-conditioned pokey room, pool table, Fox Sports. You'll find them all at the Central Hotel as well as motel accommodation right in the heart of town. Don't miss your chance to win cash and jag the Joker on Friday nights or the Surf Club raffles on Saturdays at 2pm. The Central Hotel, the pub where the locals still meet. Yeah, let's head off uh, for the last uh, section of the Renee Gayer interview. This uh, track, Renee Gayer and Uncle Bill, I scare myself. When they're running, I keep thinking of you. When they're running, what can I
voice and um, the way you do records and, and sing, you could have been um, another Betty, Betty Smith or anything of that, you know, to the world, world class. And you are world class in what you do. I'm fumbling this question solely, but the question I want to ask is, did you come back to Australia? Did you was that a, a, a choice of yours or tail, tail between legs? Yeah, let, let, let's hear the story of that. Um, well, you know, in the old days, it was a big thing when you were on your way to America and you do all these farewell shows, you know. Yeah. Um, um, I, my problem, and I, I met Jerry Wexler and I'm still in touch with Jerry Wexler. Um, he writes to me and every time I make a record, I always send, um, I don't know if he's actually still alive. I think I he's around. Um, Atlantic. Um, uh, well, I don't think he's with them anymore. Not anymore, but, no. But anyway, up until two years ago, I was still sending him everything. And he he's a big fan of mine, but the first thing he ever said to me was that um, my my heart, basically my heart breaks for you because you're not going to have an easy time of it because I am a marketing nightmare. Right. I, I have a voice that sounds like a black American. It's true, yeah. I, I come from Australia. I'm a white Australian Hungarian Jew. Mm. Um, my my leanings are also I'm a rhythm and blues based singer because that's my my main influence, but I do tend to walk a little on the left in terms of material sometimes. Um, so I'm not the typical it's a really hard thing to market for a lot of people and back in the 70s I'll give you a perfect example um, when I had an album the album that had Stairs and Whispers on it and we re-recorded Heading in the Right Direction for that album and this was back in 74 this was back in the days when black radio in america only played black music they didn't play there was no blue eyed soul at that point i think it was even before you know hall and oats and you know all that stuff so what happened was they put heading in the right direction out as a single it was picked up by all the east coast black radio all the way from the top down to the bottom yeah. you know cleveland you know New York, the whole thing, Philadelphia, all black radio picked heading in the right direction up. The record company suggested when we made the cover to not put my face on the cover because they thought, let's just not, let's just leave it because in those days they didn't play white music on black radio. Right. And their thinking, and they were right, was that if they played it long enough, people would... It wouldn't matter by the time it came out, even though they couldn't play it anymore. People would know and would find me somehow. I'd have my following and it wouldn't matter. But I stubbornly, this is, you know, where you live and you learn, stubbornly was thinking, but I'm me and I'm proud to be me. And it was sort of almost like uh, anti-racism. It was racism in the other way. exactly. Um, So... There I was with my huge, big pink face on the cover of the album <laughs> that accompanied that single. When they got that, boom, 
off came heading from the playlist because that was that this, was this in was their black, day. black radio, black radio. Thought, yeah they took it off yeah and 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 if i had have listened to the record company and just had some great painting on the cover and maybe inside you know you, you found out that i was a white girl um they just reckoned by then it would have taken and it would have been too late and people would have just loved it anyway and but we just the timing was wrong and the big pink face was there and they went what a shame so they they took it off and that's a classic story of of something where i should have listened to those people because it's not really cheating but it's it's a way of you know giving medicine to someone with sugar on the top you know yeah they were listening to something that they loved but they couldn't keep playing it when they knew I was white. So I've had this this sort of, you know, kind of dichotomy situation happening and, and, and again, marketing nightmare because how do you... In those days especially, there was no George Michael and there was no Blue-Eyed Soul and they just didn't know what to do with me. So the record company didn't know how to promote mm. the record because it was produced by the top Frank Wilson one of the top producers of Motown he did all the temptation stuff and keep on trucking you know the yeah. uh, that guy from the temps the high voice guy um and, and um anyway i was surrounded by black musicians and black producers so but i couldn't be on the black label black part of the label because i was white but mm. if i was on the white part of the label they didn't get it either because i was too black for the white side so yeah. i kind of had a bit of a problem and i would have probably had the same problem had i been raised in america because it was just the way it was yeah. nowadays there's more white people that have a black sound but this was back in the day when you know people got a big shock when they found out I was white and that was around what uh, late early 70s? 70s early 70s yeah. early 70s and you were quite big in australia then obviously yeah well i'd already had man's world and um heading in the right direction was already a hit down here yeah we re-recorded it for that album over there right yeah i noticed it comes up on a, a few albums yeah i've actually done it originally with my ready to deal band yeah. um and then i did it again on that American album and I just did it on Tenderland. Yes. Because we wanted just to do something where it was just mainly piano, bass, drums and voice and just really stripped back. So Right. Yeah, no that that's really good. Uh, in terms of your albums, you have favorite tracks? That's it's a dumb question, I know, oh, yeah. so I apologize for asking you. But that's all right. No. Um Which which are the favorites? Oh uh, I I think I sort of have favorite bunches you know yeah. like um ready to deal was the album that now that's from the early 70s isn't it yeah but ready to deal is the album that has made me enabled me to be a stayer as opposed to just a cover singer because it was the first record man's world had come out um and that made a big impact because it was right around the time helen ready had i am woman so yep. it worked and but ready to deal was when I signed with Mushroom Records and it was completely original except for one song, If Loving You Is Wrong, that yeah. uh, Bobby Bland song, which was written by Luther Ingram. Uh, if Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want To Be Right. That mm -hmm. was the only cover on that song. We wrote that whole album ourselves and from that came Heading. If not for that album, I don't think I'd still be here today because that cemented me as a 
as an original artist, not yes. just a cover singer. Um, so that's a very favourite special album for me. Um, and then there's songs on every album that are favourites of mine, but I think um, Tenderland is close to my heart because it, it it is, in fact, songs that I grew up loving. And because of the response I got from it, because it, it was really dodgy waiting for the critics' response on yes, that one. Yes, yes. Because cover, cover, and you're treading on really sacred ground when you're dealing with Marvin Gaye and yeah. Gladys Knight and stuff. So it was all about the arrangements and how we delivered it. And so waiting for the response on that one was hairy. When we got Bruce Elder writing the review of of A Lifetime, I mean, it was... It was one of those reviews in the Sydney Morning Herald, which it's a career changing or a career impact making review in terms of it sort of cemented my so called legendariness. Yes. And in his words, and he's he's quite discerning. He's not he's not a, a gusher, mm. Bruce Elder. So it was him saying, you know here is the record that she was born to make and, you know, the fact that she's produced it and the arrangements are such that they've complemented the songs and not blasphemed and trodden over the way the originals were is, you know... So I think Tenderland has got a little place in my heart and my last album, which hardly anyone knew about, or, I mean, when I say hardly anyone, I've got a 15,000 guaranteed fanship from the old days that right. follow me everywhere no matter how it's promoted they know that I've got an album out yeah of course Tenderland went way past that um, but tonight the next album didn't get the promotion that the last one got Tenderland got so but it's also very close to my heart because Magoo produced that this fantastic producer and there's a lot of original material on there that I'm very proud of. So every record's got something on it that I love or else it wouldn't be there. Yeah. There's only one. It's such a lovely morning to see it Yeah, you're listening to an interview with Renee Gaya. Let's have a listen to a track off Tenderland. This one called Morning Glory. Morning glory Do we have to mention Honest, that one? For real, well, yeah, I'd like people to avoid it um, if they can. And it's a record that I did on for Warner Brothers, the only one record I ever did for Warner Brothers, and it was called Sing To Me. And that song is the only good song because Don Walker wrote that song. Right. And we did a beautiful string quartet version. 
that and a classic jazz song called Guess Who I Saw Today, which yeah. is on that album, are the only two tracks that are worth anything. The rest of it was just gathered quickly and we just went into the studio and so, was winged it, it. a contract album? It, it, we just winged it. And I just learnt from that record that you... Every single song, there is a there is a thinking, maybe not so much nowadays, but there used to be a thing where get two or three great songs, the rest can be filler. You just yeah. need these couple yeah. of singles. couple of singles, no, buy, buy the album. Now, I've learnt that it's got to be all killer, no filler, and then you're, you're, you know, covered with whatever. They can pick any song on the record and it is able to be a potential single yeah and so i don't ever put a song on the on a record that i think is iffy or it's got to be amazing or it ain't going on yeah no uh, good strategy obviously is paying off as well um yeah and we're doing this um live uh, in melbourne in elwood and um it's a nice sunny day outside renee's sitting here and we're getting lots of outside noises so bear mm-hmm. with us folks um here's a question um they're often asked to people, what's wrong with the music business? What's hard about it? What have been some of the hurdles you've had to overcome? Uh, I think everyone has their own story. But, you know, corporate, um, the corporate situation of the music business worldwide is, is not, not a great one. Um, I, I, I always question the amount the record company makes as opposed to what the artist makes. Um, um, but there's a lot more independent stuff going on in Australia now than there, than there was. But um, I think it's pretty much the same as it, as it ever was. It's, it's basically, it's a tough life. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the, the actual performance part is a tiny fraction of what your life is. The rest of it is all working out, you know, how much you're getting for a certain thing, having to sort out the band and the crew and then the travelling and um, the odd um, gig or show that where they don't pay, you know, that's that's sort of rare, rarer and rarer for me as, as I get sort of on. Um, but, you know... I think it's a lot easier for a youngster starting out now than it used to be. Mm. But in a way, having said that, it's kind of, as with Idol, you can see that that kids are expected to be TV performers as well as musicians. Yes. And, and that, for me, was a side effect of my job, which wasn't my favourite thing to do, you know, having to go on the Don Lane show or Graham Kennedy in Melbourne tonight and and you'd arrive and see this huge set with a big half moon that you'd think, oh, my God, this could not <laughs> be for me. And and lots of money used to go into all these sets and I'll never forget having to sit on this moonbeam and be lowered from the <laughs> ceiling and um. then get off the moonbeam, walk. And I'm always, always used to sing live either with an orchestra or to a backing tape. But the vocals were always live. So you're actually having to get off the moonbeam, walk to the spot where the cross is, the mark is, and then... And there's monitors in front of you everywhere. So you see yourself in a monitor and you're going, (laughs) oi. 
and you've got that in your head, plus you're trying to sing, plus you've got to remember your mark. And all these things were things I was never trained to do. I was a band singer. Yeah. And it took me ages to even turn around on stage and face the audience, let alone <laughs> me being on TV. Yeah. So nowadays you've got to have all that as well as, I mean, that's almost more important than the singing bit, the, yeah. way, the way people are doing, you know, what it seems like people are doing. Now you're working with some young Australian singers, I think. Every was it Ella Thompson's name? Ella, Ella Thompson, yeah. Yep. And, and others as well. Yeah, a few uh, others. And now you just talk, you're talking the, the music business with them or just the singing Oh, side no, no, no. Well, well, a bit of everything really. I mean, I'm not really a qualified teacher as in I don't, you know, I only take on people that are already out there doing performances because... My um, forte is phrasing and helping helping in your interpretation of a song to touch an audience. As in if somebody's a really busy, busy singer and they're singing licks after licks after mm. licks, like a Mariah Carey type singer, although yes. she does it really well. Um, I'm constantly telling singers to sort of just don't, give up all your tricks in the first two bars and it's not about tricks it's about the song and the words of the song and how you deliver that song to touch an audience and always less is more and I'm always you know taking you know not suppressing but you know asking them to to be to simplify things and then if they're going to pull something out, pick a really good spot to do it, like in the last verse. Or mm-hmm. So it's sort of like the architecture of a song and how to touch an audience, um, especially if you're singing a cover. And the lyrics, you know, but I'm only um, in the last 15 years have realised that it is so much more important to worry about the song and how the lyrics of that song and the way you sing it touches an audience as opposed to how great you sing it yes. or how great the band is that plays it with you. Yeah. The song has to ring true to the audience and that that is something that I can help singers with. But um, a lot of people come want to come on board thinking I'm going to be the lo, 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 lo. You know, I yeah. can't do any yeah. of that. Yeah. They've got to be past that. Yes, and, yeah. And I can help almost anybody unless they're tone deaf. Right. Um, but um, I'm probably better at doing a sort of masterclass thing and showing a lot of people by having a few examples get up and then talking about that as opposed to one-on-one because I'm not really a qualified teacher and I also don't have a lot of patience. If somebody is really not... If, if, if the advice is not sinking in, I'm not great the patience part of it. I mean, I, I can honestly, it's never happened, but I can see myself wringing someone's neck <laughs> um, and asking them to leave my home. You know, not, that would never happen. But but if I keep doing things um, like I thought it would be in the beginning, like I'd just get a few singers. And um, the minute you let people know that you're teaching you get a big feedback from yeah, that. Yeah. And most of the people out there are not qualified yet or some of them are just people that 
you know, can't sing but think they can sing. And so um, I'm doing only doing very special projects. Yeah. And with Ella Thompson, it was a pleasure because she's already got a band. And yeah. yeah. Through that um, show that she did with me and Vicar and Linda called yeah. Voice, she, I came out every night and introduced her as a you know special guest. From that. She got Paul Kelly. She's he, she's now opening for him on a few regional shows. Great. So I feel like mission accomplished. Yep. She's on her own now she's on her own, to go yeah. to the next level. But on the last show we did Adelaide, and the hotel was was okay, but it wasn't as flash as the other hotels. And I actually heard her go, "Oh, this is a bit dodgy." And I thought to myself, "Well, <laughs> and you're on the Disneyland version of touring because I'm, you know, 36 years later, I get treated pretty good. Wait till you go out there on your own. That's right. You know, if you. So there is this problem that I find, Dennis, that in this new generation, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that parents are more like your buddies now yeah which means people stay home longer they don't leave home like they did when we were young and we we were always doing what our parents didn't want us to do by being in the music business because they didn't think it would lead to anything because yeah. there was no business as such in those days so i i left home and a lot of people would have left home in whatever level of, of work they did to rebel not to rebel, but they would be rebelling and leaving home and getting on with it themselves. Nowadays, because of such support from your parents and they're like buds, yeah, you stay at home longer. Um, life out there is tough. They're not toughening up like they did back in my my old day, you know. Okay, now on the other side of um, of the equation, talking about you know teaching young singers, you, you're the patron of the Support Act. Yes. Is it Support Act Australia or Support, Support Act, Limited? Act Limited? Can you tell us something about that? Well, it's an organisation, thank goodness, that is there for musicians and artists that have become ill, fallen on hard times, need a, need a bit of a hand financially in whatever capacity. Um, they're mainly made up of volunteers. They're only just building now. Um, and... They've just now, if people go to www.supportact.com.au, they can actually find out by paying one fee, I think it's $33 or something, they're a lifetime member, but they don't even have to have paid that fee to qualify for benefits if they fall ill or something's happened. But my, we're the first generation of people that are now falling sick and and yeah. dying you yeah. know we're, we're the first wave and it's going to happen now a lot so the musicians union as it was doesn't exist anymore and they used to take our dues every year they would take dues and nobody knows where they've gone or where all <laughs> those they they were meant to be for our old age you know benefits so it's kind of a superannuation sort of fund for musicians and artists and road crew, which is very important because they're usually the lowest on the totem pole when it comes to help on that level. Um, and I think the qualifications are just that you've been in the industry for a certain amount of years, you know, how sick are you and how, how much do you need money? And um, I don't know of a musician that when he falls 
ill to that level and needs a lot of, you know, medical help, I, I don't think there exists a situation where they're rolling in money because musicians don't get paid a lot of money. That's right. There's always benefit concerts, some yeah. for people who've fallen ill and, or for family and, of people who've passed away. And the musician world is probably one of the most kindest of all organisations when somebody's fallen ill or they do rally, they do yeah. put on shows. And But we're trying to make it a little more than just having a bucket handed around at gigs or the odd benefit thrown. We want to make something of this organisation so that there is something for people coming up for their old age because, sure. you know, we don't have an organisation anymore. No, well, that's interesting. Okay, so well, look, I think let's say thanks for coming in and spending uh, time with a salty dog, uh, Renee. It's been great talking with you about a whole range of stuff. Really, we've yeah. sort of taken a bit of a tour to tour to force, and certainly looking forward to your new album uh, in two thousand and seven. Uh, and if it's anything like Tenderland, uh, we'll be listening uh, for, as we say uh, in Australia, a cracker, <laughs> corker, a corker. That'll do. And. Um, any, any favourite piece of music you think we should play uh, to sort of finish off the interview? Um, oh, I reckon maybe something from Tenderland. Um, you got a favourite track on there? I I really think we did a great job with Midnight Train to Georgia. Yeah, I thought so too. So let's do that one and uh, people can listen to that as we go. So thanks again for coming in. Thank you. And uh, we'll catch you around. And there's a great dog here. Salty Dog has a great salty dog called Neo. He's a legend. (laughs) He's the original. Okay, thanks, Renee. Thank you. Said he's going back to find What's left of his world world he left behind not so long ago he's leaving on a midnight train to Georgia going back to find a simpler place in time I'd rather live in his world than live without him in mind. He kept
this world I'd rather live in his world I'd rather live in his world 